You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Mark chapter 1 is where we are, so you need your Bible out in front of you. It's going to take us just a second to get there this morning. And as we start off 2013, I, I want to just actually spend a couple of minutes to lead off this morning and, uh, and encourage and just remind you of a couple of things that lie right at the heart of our church and our church family. So I just want to remind you, because I know that, that for all of us in the room, we are very prone to forget. We all have very slippery memories. And so I just want to make sure that, that we're keeping in front of you a couple of things that are really, really important around Stonegate. And here is the first one. It's on this idea of mission, that we as a church are meant to be living on the mission of God. We're about the mission of God around here. This is what we're about, that we are the sent people of God. God has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation, this gospel message. He's entrusted that to us. He has sent us with that. He's made us these ambassadors and these missionaries of the gospel. And so I want to make sure I just remind you of that as we start out 2013. Just to remind you that God has pronounced over you missionary, sent one. He's entrusted to you the gospel. Okay, now let me just tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that we're just supposed to have like a spasm of evangelistic activity going on in our life. That's not the goal. When we say that we are the sent people of God, here's what we mean by that. That we're to live every day of our life, every moment of our life. We're to do everything that we're doing right now in life with gospel intentionality. That the word to live, doing everything we do, we're to live with this gospel intentionality, that everything we do is, is lived with this awareness of we are to be salt and light. That, that we are to give the gospel everywhere we go. That we ought to have like this gospel buffer around us. Whether we're in the workplace, in our home, in our neighborhood, wherever we are, that we are the sent people of God. Now, and I, I say that, and I want to remind you of that, because frankly, we need growth in that area. Our church family needs growth in this identity of missionary. And if you were to look at your life, I'm assuming that for most of us in the room, if you looked at your life and asked, how, how am I doing living on the mission of God, that you would probably recognize that you personally need a lot of growth in this area. And let me tell you why this is so important. If you aren't living on the mission of God, you know what that means for our church? It means that we aren't living on the mission of God. So, so let me maybe ask it, or maybe kind of phrase it in this sort of a way. That when you think about the last year of your life, if we were just to take you as the model for our church and say, if, if everyone was living like you were on the mission of God, how, how would our church be doing? So let's just take the last year. Anybody over the last year gotten saved primarily because God has used your life and lips for the salvation of another person? Okay, now here's, I just want you to know this and, and feel this. If your answer is no to that, our answer is no to that. See, it's really easy to want a church to be something that you don't want to be, right? See, if, if you want our church to be that, it means that you have to be that. And let me just maybe bring it down one step below that. If you are going to be kind of the model for, for how our church operates, if you were to look at your, like the last year of your life and said, you know, how am I doing with gospel conversations with men and women that don't know Jesus? Are any of those happening? See, if, if your answer is no to that, it means that, that our church's answer is no to that. Like, if, if you're the model for gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus, how are we doing? We'll go one step below that. If we were to say that just on your life, kind of using that as the benchmark for our church, if we're going off your life, how are we doing on inviting people that don't know Jesus into our life? Like across the dinner table sort of no. Like I know their family, they know my family, we hang out together, we do life together. People that don't know Jesus. So, so I just want you to see that, that if we're going to be a, a church family that gets to know and love lost people, people that don't know Jesus, it's going to mean that you're going to have to be a person that gets to know and loves lost people, people that don't know Jesus. And maybe one more below that. If we were going to use your life as the example of this and say, like, based on your life, how are we doing as a church? If we were just to take a snapshot of your life over the last year and say, is there like a desperate pleading with God to use your life and lips for the salvation of other people? Like your life and lips for the salvation of a neighbor, of a coworker, of this family member. Pleading with God to save. If we were looking at your life for that, how would we be doing as a church? 
So I just want to remind you of those things, that that we are the sent people of God, and we need growth in this area of our church. And that means that we all personally need to get before God, and we need to, to ask God to give us great ambitions for this next year about what mission looks like, about what it is that he would have us praying for and hoping for and pestering him for. So I just want to encourage you in in that as we start 2013, that that we and you would be a person living on the mission of God, that we would be living in this identity of the sent people of God. And here's the second thing. So the first one is we we are about living on the mission of God. And here's the second one. It has this idea of community involved in it. That it's not just that you and I are living on the mission of God. It's that, that, that we're doing that together. That we're living on the mission of God together as a church family. Like here is one of the, the beautiful gospel realities. Is when God saves us, he adopts us. So, so now we've got God as father. And do you know what that makes other Christians like our church family? It makes them brothers and sisters, doesn't it? It makes them family. So, so we have a church that's a family. Now, I want to just give you two implications for what that means around our place. This idea of that we are intended to live with one another, in community with one another. uh, another. Here's the first implication. The first is, is that you really, 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 really need to get into a home group. You really need to do that. that. That is the place around our church where community, the atmosphere for community to be created happens. So, so if, you're, if Stonegate's your church home, then you need to make sure that you are jumping into a home group and you are living with a group of people, right? So you're living in the, in the middle of that. And, and can I just encourage you in this? One of God's primary tools to make you more like Jesus is community. Apart from you getting your life in good community, you are not going to be all that God's created you to be. We, we all have blind spots in our life, and we all need people who are willing to speak the truth and love to us. So I just want to encourage you, as we start 2013, to make sure you are in great community with people who care enough about you to speak the truth and love to you. So that's the first implication, to, to get, make sure you're in a home group or, or at least moving in that direction. And the second one, this idea of, of community, we're a church family here. The second implication would mean that, that if this is your church family, if Stonegate's your home, the one that you'd claim, it means that you're actually serving in the church somewhere. And, and I want to encourage you on that, to, to make sure that you are serving somewhere around Stonegate. And I use this imagery a lot to, to kind of give the two views that you might have of a local church. And here is the first common view that people would have, is the church is like a hotel, right? And so now think about what happens when you go to a hotel. When you go to a hotel, you open up the door and you walk into a room that is all put together for you. The bed's made, it's really nice. The pillows are fluffed. And if you're lucky, you might even have a mint on that pillow, right? And if something goes wrong in your stay, all you do is pick up the phone, call down to the front desk, and they'll send up whatever you need, whatever whatever needs to be taken care of. They will do all of that for you. Okay, that that is one common kind of perception of what the local church is. But, But can I just tell you that if the local church is a family, it's not a hotel, that's wrong imagery. That if the local church is a family, then, then the church is a home. Now, can I just ask you a question? If your bed's going to get made at your house, who's going to make it? You are. If, if your room is going to be clean, who's going to clean it? You are. If you're going to have a pillow that's fluffed, who's going to do the fluffing? You are. If, if you're going to have a mint sitting on your pillow... Laura isn't putting that mint on my pillow. I'll promise you that. You're going to be putting it on the, right? I mean, it's going to be you doing that or me doing that. And and I just want to make sure you're seeing correctly here that the church is not meant to be a hotel where you come and consume a product. It's meant to be a home that you're actually contributing to it. Are, Are you seeing that? That you would actually have like roles and responsibilities that you would actually be serving in the midst of a family. And so in light of that, I want you, if you're not serving right now, just want to make sure you ask yourself the right question. Like, how are you viewing the church? And if you're viewing it as a hotel where you just come and you consume, you come and things better go go right. If that's your view of what happens on a Sunday morning or what happens in the context of a church, now I want to invite you to repent of being a consumer. To repent of, of seeing the church in a wrong way. Something that you just come and consume, right? That's not the the view of the church, the biblical view of the church. And I want to invite you to start serving, to to view the church as a home where you actually have a role to play in it, 
where you can actually contribute to the mission of the church. So in light of that, we have teams like right now on Sunday morning that need help from preschool to greeting. We have several of them that all need help right now. And so these two things, from home group to to serving on a Sunday morning or in our church, I want to direct you as soon as we're done up to the table, up in the foyer. It's a little welcome table. It's the one that the conference center has built in. That table right there up top in the foyer. If you'll make sure you stop there on the way out, there'll be a few guys there that can help kind of direct you in the right ways for home groups and or serving. So if that's you, no home group, not serving, make sure you take a stop by there or you can email Travis Wyckoff this week and uh, he will set you up and kind of get you kind of heading down the right road. Okay, with that out of the way, we are starting the Gospel of Mark. Here we go. And it's 16 chapters long. That means this is going to be a really long series. Somebody asked me how long the other day. All I could tell them was really long. It's going to be really long. I think if things go according to plan, that we're going to actually finish on Easter of 2014. <laughs> yeah, so hey, don't laugh. It's 16 chapters, all right? 16, there, there is gospel gold all over the place in this thing. And so it's going to take us a while to work through. Over the next year or 15 months, we're going to um, put in a couple of smaller kind of sets of sermons, one on adoption, one on gospel promises that will kind of break it up. But you need to snuggle in, get kind of tight with Mark because we're going to be here for a while. And in light of that, I just want to ask you to do this, to make sure you're studying along with us, that you're up to date with us, that you sit and that you read Mark, that you study Mark, that you ask the Spirit of God to open up the book of Mark so you can see what it is that God would want you to have in here, right? So the gospel of Mark, Today is step one of like 3,000 steps that we're going to take in it. And uh, today is a really small step. It's one verse. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to be. Okay, so uh, I'm going to frame this morning in a couple of questions. Actually, four questions. Here's the first one. And this is just going to kind of get us acclimated to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, what it is that's going on in these 16 chapters. Here is the first question. Question number one. When was Mark written? When was Mark written? Uh, generally speaking, and we don't know for sure, but generally speaking, we could say between A.D. 55 and A.D. 70 is when this thing came together. It, it represents the earliest attempt of condensing down the, the life and message of Jesus into a document, into a written form. It's the earliest attempt. Now, one of the interesting things that that brings along with it is when you think of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. And here's what that means, that they share a common structure and a lot of the same material. And since Mark was the first one that came together, there's general agreement that it also served as the source material and kind of the template for both Matthew and Luke. So one of the reasons I think it's good to study Mark is because it is like the earliest one written. It kind of serves as the source material template for some of the other gospels that were penned after it. So that's the when question. When, roughly speaking, 80, 55-ish to to maybe 70, and that that sort of a time period. Here's the second question. So that first one was the when. The second one is the who. Who is the author of Mark? Who is the author? And although the the gospel of Mark is anonymous, it doesn't say, you're not going to read in there anywhere where the guy identifies himself as the author. Although it's generally anonymous as far as the pinning of it, it has been accepted and credited to a guy named John Mark from the very earliest days of church history. So that has been almost universal acceptance of that. Very little disagreement that the author of Mark is a guy named John Mark. That's the author. Okay, now we also know a few things about John Mark. The Bible tells us a few things about him. So here are a couple of the things about this man, John Mark. The first one is uh, Acts 12.12 tells us that he is the son of a prominent lady in the early church named Mary. So if you read Acts 12, 12, you'll see that the early church was gathering in Mary's house and and praying there. And so he, John Mark, was the son of that Mary in Acts 12, 12. And in Colossians 4, 10, we see that, that he is also, John Mark, is also the cousin of Barnabas. And so now when you think about John Mark, Barnabas, this whole connection, Paul and Barnabas went on several missionary journeys together. And they brought John Mark along in one of those journeys. 
And in, that, in the middle of that journey, John Mark decided that he wanted to go back to Jerusalem. And we don't know why he wanted to go back. Um, some people would, would say maybe it was fear or anxiety that, that led him to kind of ditch the missionary journey. I'm, I'm heading out, going back to Jerusalem. We don't know why, but we do know this, that Paul was frustrated enough at, at his reasoning for why he was going back that he considered John Mark untrustworthy to take on the next missionary journey. While Barnabas, Mark's cousin, felt like he was trustworthy to do it. Right, And so the next missionary journey, it causes this rift where, where uh, Paul and Barnabas kind of split ways. And that Paul kind of considers him untrustworthy. But here, I want you to see this, just this redemptive picture in the life of John Mark, though. By the end of Paul's life, we read this. This is the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He, he writes this. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, this is the same Paul who didn't consider him trustworthy just a few years before. And, and I think it just gives you a picture of the, just the amazing grace of God over people's life. Right? So you've got John Mark, who probably out of anxiety and fear, ditched a missionary trip. Paul no longer considered him trustworthy. But by the end of his life, Paul is looking at him as it's been reconciled to him to the point where he would say, make sure you bring Mark because this man is a trustworthy vessel of ministry. That this man is good for ministry. And he's, he was restored to God to the point where he penned one of the first four Gospels. And, and to, I want that just to be a picture, especially for those in the room, who when you look back over your life, you see a lot of past failures. And, and maybe you're in the room and you see a lot of past failures in ministry. To, to know that John Mark is a picture of the grace of God. That just because when you look back, you see a lot of failures in your past, that doesn't rule out for you usefulness in the kingdom of God as you look forward. Now, some of us need to hear that. Just because you see failures in your past, just like John Mark, you, when you look forward, that does not rule out usefulness in the kingdom of God. Right? This, this is the picture of the grace of God over this man Mark's life. And, and let me just kind of throw this in as just a, a kind of a side note in here as well. That most of what we're going to read through the gospel of Mark, Mark was probably not an eyewitness to. So it begs the question, how in the world did he write the gospel of Mark not being an eyewitness to most of the things that he wrote? And that welcomes us into the life of Peter. Um, John Mark probably got saved under Peter's ministry, and Peter kind of served as a mentor and a discipler of John Mark. And so what you have, and, and by the way, Peter's a pretty big deal in the New Testament, right? So he was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was one kind of on the inner circle around Jesus, a really close disciple of Jesus. He was a leader in the early church. And it would lead you to kind of think of if somebody was going to write a gospel, I mean, shouldn't like Peter be one of those who, who would have written one? Well, the answer to that question is Peter, in essence, did write one. So he was, had this mentor-discipling relationship with John Mark, and he shared with Mark everything he knew about Jesus. And that is what makes up the Gospel of Mark. If you want to think about the, the Gospel of Mark, you might think of it this way. That it's written by John Mark, but it's written through the eyes of Peter. That when you think about the Gospel of Mark, you might consider it the Gospel of Peter. It's written through the lens of how Peter saw all of these things happen and go down. So that is the who of, of Mark. And then I want to get to the how. How was Mark written? And just to give you a couple of things to kind of acclimate you to the, to the kind of the structure and the themes and those sort of things in the gospel of Mark. How was it written? Mark is unique among the gospels in that it is pulsating with activity. It has less to do with the teachings of Jesus and more to do with the doings of Jesus. So, so it's pulsating. It's favorite word. One of the favorite words in the Gospel of Mark is this word immediately. The, that word immediately is used 51 times in the New Testament. 41 of those come in the Gospel of Mark. So, so you've got this very fast-paced and action-oriented book. And in part, it has to be that because it's the shortest of all the Gospels. So Matthew has 28 chapters, Luke 24, John 21 chapters, and, and Mark has 16 chapters. So it forces this quick-paced narrative, constantly doing, 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 doing. And, and also when you think about the gospel of Mark, it, it doesn't have some of the big teaching narratives of Jesus. Like where Matthew has um, three sermons called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Mark does not include that. There's no Sermon on the Mount. Less teaching, more doing. Think about the parables. In Luke, there's 25 parables. In Matthew, there's 20 parables. In Luke, or in, in Mark, there's only seven parables. 
Only seven. So, so in Mark, there's no parable of the prodigal son. There's no good Samaritan. There's no parable of the talents. It has much less to do with the, the teachings of Jesus and much more of the action. It's action-oriented. And we're going to see that pick up really quickly. That the pace moves very, very fast. One thing to another all the way through the book of Mark. So that's the how. And this is where we're going to kind of sit for the morning and, uh, and do some work. The what. What is Mark's purpose? Like, why is it that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark? Why did he condense these stories down into 16 chapters and publish and get out to the world? What is he up to? And let me just start in the answer to that question by giving you some of the reasons that he did not write it. So, so here are some of the reasons he did not write it, that, that do not make up the purpose of it. And let, let me give you three of these. One is, he didn't write this as a biography. The Gospels are not meant to be biographies. So if you've picked up a biography and read a biography lately, you would know this about the biographies. That they're going to start with like the childhood, maybe even the birth of this person. Work all the way up through all the significant events that kind of shaped their childhood. Kind of shaped their adolescent years. And then you get to the significant lives, uh, you know, of them as an adult. All those significant events that happened then. But that is not the way the Gospels are laid out, laid out particularly Mark. When you get to Mark, uh, you're introduced to Jesus when he's 30 years old. That, that's Mark 1, 30-year-old Jesus. You have nothing about his birth, nothing about his early days, right? So, so it's not a biography in that sense. A biography would not skip to year 30 with no details about those younger years, right? So it's not a biography. The purpose is not to give you all the kind of the biographical nature of Jesus, but it is biographical. It does give us some things about the life of Jesus. So I just want you to see that, that it's not primarily meant to be a biography, although it is biographical. Here's the second reason that he did not write it. The, the Gospels, and particularly Mark, are not meant to be history books. He didn't write this to give you a history of first century world. Like there's a lot of things in the Gospels that are, not, that are not kind of inserted in, a lot of significant events in history that do not make it into the Gospel narratives. Right? The, the, in any sort of a history book would be in there. Significant events that, sh that shape that time period. But the purpose of the writings of the gospel, particularly Mark, is not to give you a history book. Right? It's, it's not meant, the reason he wrote was not to give you a history book, although there's some things in it that are historical. It is an historical book. In other words, like what you see, the stories played out inside the gospels, namely Mark, did happen. It's real history. Like Jesus actually lived. He actually died on a cross. People who met him were actually healed. People's hearts were actually changed by Jesus. He actually rose from the dead. So, so although it's not a history book, it is historical. These things actually happened. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It's real history. And thirdly, the Gospels are not primarily meant to be instruction manuals. So the reason the reason Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark was not to give you an instruction manual for life. That is not what the Gospels are about. Although they do contain some instruction. So, so you're going to hear some of what Jesus says about how life should play out for us. But it's not primarily meant to be an instruction book for life. So that begs the question, what is Mark up to? What are the Gospels about? And Mark 1.1 is going to welcome us and kind of walk us into the purpose of the Gospels. Mark 1.1 says this, <clears throat> 12 words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those 12 words are huge words. They cut like a knife through history. They cut like a knife through the heart of every human being. Th those are a huge 12 words. Let me just point out two of those words to get us started. Do you see the word like four or five in there? Gospel, the gospel, do you see that? He, he's saying that, that I'm writing to you about the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that word gospel wasn't strictly a Christian word in the first century. It wasn't strictly Christian. It was used outside of Christian context. So in the first century, the primary way the word gospel was used was to describe a military announcement. So if you can imagine this scene. Imagine that you live in a country and, and you just got invaded by a foreign army. And as soon as you got invaded, there was an announcement that said, we've got to get all of our strong and able-bodied men together and we've got to go fight this invading army. So imagine yourself in this city. All the able-bodied men have their gear on, their swords strapped to their sides, and you watch them file out of the city to go fight this, this foreign invader. 
And you're knowing full well that you may never see these people again. And you knowing this, that if they lose, you are doomed. If they lose, this city is going to be sacked eventually and you're going to probably die. So, so you watch them file out of the city on their way to fight this foreign invader. And, and just picture this scene where you haven't heard back from them in weeks, maybe even months. What has happened? Did they win? Did they lose? What is going on? And all of a sudden on the horizon, you see a man running toward the city. And you would have called that man an angel or a messenger or an evangelist. And he runs back to the city. He comes through the city walls. He gets to the middle of the kind of the public square, gathers everyone around, and he announces a gospel. See, this is the way the word gospel we use. He, he announces this gospel. He, he looks around at the city and says, here is the great news. We have won. Our men are coming home. The victory is, is sure. See, th this is how the word gospel was used. I love how one commentator described it. He said, a gospel in the ancient world described a historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. And this is what Mark is up to. He is announcing a gospel. And not just a gospel, but the gospel. The historical event that has changed the way the world works. See, this is what Mark is about. He is about announcing, about proclaiming the life and work of Jesus, which is ushered in a, an entirely different way. And it, this, it's this historical event that has totally changed the way the rest of the world operates. This is what Mark is about. He is about announcing this sort of a thing. This led one commentator to call kind of the writings of the gospel, kind of to generally label those as witness documents. That the purpose of Mark is to show you what God has done for you in Jesus. That's why he's writing. It's not primarily to show you all of the life of Jesus. It's about showing you the life that has been won for you in Christ Jesus. That this is the purpose of the gospel of Mark. And look at this other word here. Do you see it? It's the second word. Do you see that word beginning? That word beginning is an intentional pointer that Mark has put in word two in his gospel that should make you think about how the Bible opens. Do you remember the opening verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1? In the what? In the beginning. See, it should make your mind instantly go back there. And what happened in the beginning? In the beginning, God spoke an event happened that had universe-altering effects. Namely, he created the universe. Are you seeing that? Genesis 1-1, something happens that is universe-shattering. It's created. And here we come in the Gospel of Mark, and the second word, the second word he says is the beginnings. It's, it's a pointer back. He, he's, he's trying to acclimate our mind around just like a universe-shattering, universe-shaking event happened in Genesis 1-1. I am about to announce to you another universe-shattering event. I'm about to announce it. I'm about to pronounce. I'm about to give you news of a new event. Not the creation of the world, but the recreation of the world through Jesus. That the God is on the move here. And he is on the move through his son. He is intervening. He is going to do something about our sin-damaged and darkened world. He's about to do something. And he's about to do something through his son, Jesus. Th this is what Mark is about. Okay, now I want to just kind of outline the structure of Mark for you by answering, asking and answering three questions. that kind of provide the framework for how Mark op operates. And it's really the three questions that the gospel of Mark answers throughout it. It's three questions. And listen, these three questions are three of the most important questions in your life. Gospel of Mark is going to answer all three of them. But these are like three of the most important questions you will ever ask yourself and you will ever, ever seek to answer. It's three questions that kind of frame the book of Mark. Here's question number one that Mark is going to ask and answer for us. Question number one goes like this. Who is Jesus? There, there is no more important question. There is no question you'll ever ask and ever answer that will have more kind of effects on your life, that, that will alter your life more than this question. And maybe I could even say it this way. 
you could get every other question that you're ever asked right, but if you miss this one, every other question will be in vain. If you miss this one, everything's lost. If you miss this one, it doesn't matter what else you're right about. And, and, and Mark is about to show us here the, the answer to this question. And, and by the way, I don't know how many of you play poker. I am a terrible poker player. But I know this one thing about poker, that you're not supposed to let the other person know what's in your hand, right? I mean, I don't know a lot, but I know this. If you're sitting across from me and we're playing, I'm not showing you my cards. And can I just say, Mark is no poker player. From Mark 1.1, he answers the question, who is this Jesus? Who is he? From, from Mark 1.1, here's his answer. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here, here are the two things he tells us about this Jesus. Number one, he says, this Jesus is the Christ. He, he is the Christ. And let me just make sure we're all clear on this. Christ is not his last name. Are we, are we all following that? That like people in the first century didn't really have last names. So, so this is why like in the Gospels you might see Jesus referred to like this. He is Jesus of Nazareth or he is Jesus the son of Joseph. So, so you had to identify them by something else because he didn't have a last name. So by putting this last name on there, Mark is making a bold claim. A huge theological point. See, he's not identifying Jesus by where he's from, but by what he came to do. This is how he's identified. When he's saying the Christ, he is saying this is what Jesus is. This is who he is. This is what he has come to do on this planet. That, that word Christ is a, I mean, it is a pregnant word in the Bible. So, so when you start reading through the Old Testament, leading up into the New Testament, here's what we see about that word Christ. That, that this Christ is the one predicted in Genesis 3.15. That this is the one predicted by all the prophets. This Christ is the anointed and appointed one of God. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the one that has come to set the world aright. He is the one that has come to reverse the curse. He is the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Reconciler. He is the Messiah. And from verse 1 of Mark's Gospel, he is announcing to the world that the one we're talking about here, this isn't just anyone from Nazareth. This is like Jesus the Christ. This is the one that you have been waiting for. This is the one that your heart was made for. This is God in the flesh who has come to redeem mankind. That's 1-1. One, one. That's, that's Jesus the Christ, he is saying. And, and then we've got these four words that follow that. Do you, do you see the next four there? He says, the Son of God. Now, there are some disadvantages to reading the Bible 2,000 years after it was written. There are some disadvantages to that. And, and this is going to kind of allude to one of them. Like when, when you hear the words or the, the phrase, the Son of God, I mean, I, I hear that and think, okay. The, I mean, the Son of God sounds good. But, but if you were a first century Hebrew man or woman and you heard the, the phrase, this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, your ears in that moment would have started to tingle. Th you're saying that like, this is like the Son of God. Th this is that person. Okay, now if you were a first century Hebrew man or woman, you would have instantly have thought of Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to put this up on the screen for you just to show you in the Hebrew context, what would have been heard when Mark says, this is the Son of God. This is that Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This is what Daniel sees in a vision about the Son of God, the Son of Man. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like, here's our phrase, a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, listen to this, and to him, this son of God or this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, if you were a first century Hebrew man or woman and you heard the word son of God describe a person, this is what you're thinking. You're thinking, are you serious? This is that guy? 
This is, this is the one who is going to have like the kingdom that will never run out. The, the everlasting kingdom. This is the one that, that all the kingdoms of the world are going to gather around. This is the one that all the peoples, the nations and tongues and tribes are going to submit to. This is that sovereign king and creator of the universe. See, see, when they heard that, here's what they heard Mark pronouncing. That this Jesus, this Christ, this son of God, he is the sovereign king. He is this one that is going to reign over the world. It is that one. That one is now here. That's what they just heard Mark announce. See, Mark is announcing to us, this is the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, of the gospel of Mark, is announcing to us, who is this man, Jesus? That's the first eight chapters. And here's what you get to at the end of chapter eight. You hear Peter say, you want to know who this Jesus is? He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the sent one of God. So Mark answers the question, who is Jesus? But he also answers the question, why did Jesus come? So it's one thing to know who Jesus is, this king of the universe, this sovereign ruler of the universe, this Messiah, this redeemer and reconciler. But it's another thing to know why, why did he come? And when, when you start to answer this question on why did Jesus come, I, I think it's important just for you to have the context of, of a first century Hebrew person. Because the same reason they missed it is the same reason that if you were a first century Hebrew man or woman, you would have probably have missed it. Okay, now think about the context here. When Mark 1 opens, so Mark starts his gospel, he's writing this gospel, Jesus comes on the scene. Here is the context for the Hebrew people, the people of Israel. They have been oppressed by foreign rulers for almost five centuries. Now, five centuries is a long time, isn't it? That's 500 years. That's twice as long as America has been a country. That's a long time, five centuries. So, so first it was by the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now Rome. So when, when the people of Israel, when like a Hebrew man or woman in the first century heard that, okay, we have got the Christ, he is here. The Son of God just showed up on the scene. Here is what they're thinking. We just got the military leader who is going to, to bring unprecedented power to the people of Israel, who is going to absolutely crush our Roman oppressors and usher in an unparalleled season of peace and prosperity. That is what this king is about to do. This is what he is about to be about. And although that is true in part, when Jesus comes again, he will usher in an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity. That is not the reason Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He, he didn't come to crush a, 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 you know, a reigning foreign army. He came to be crushed on the cross. Amen? This is the reason that he came. But they had such a hard time seeing that, such a hard time understanding that. It made most people in first century world miss Jesus because they expected a different Jesus. So, so let me just walk through three different passages in, in the Gospel of Mark that just kind of clue us into why it is that Jesus came. And this is going to be in Mark 8, 9, and 10. I want you to follow along with me. So go ahead and turn over to Mark 8, verse 31 where three times Jesus is going to show us why it is that he came. Like, what was the purpose of his coming? Mark 8, verse 31. <clears throat> Jesus says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, if you keep reading there in, in Mark 8, you're going to see that Peter was so confused by that that he actually tried to rebuke Jesus for it. That Jesus, no way you're going to do that. No, I'm not, I'm not going to stand by and watch that happen. Are you kidding me? I mean, just could not fathom the fact that Jesus actually came to be crushed on a cross, not to crush their enemies. Okay, keep going. This is Matthew, or Mark chapter 9. Verse 30, Jesus says this, Then they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. 
Keep reading there in verse 32, and you're going to see this. That they had no idea what he was saying. They didn't understand, and they were terrified to even ask him about it. Just couldn't understand how this could be, this whole dying, going to a cross thing. Then go to to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Next chapter, Mark 10, verse 32. Uh, Jesus says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. Now, just to show you how, like, such a lack of awareness, like, permeated the disciples. If you keep reading on from like verse 34 into verse 35, you're going to see that that James and John are so like unaware, don't understand what he is actually saying here, that the next question they, or that they kind of have this whole question and, and answer thing with Jesus. They say, hey, can we ask you a question? He says, yes. And they say, okay, now when, when we're like in glory, like this next life, can you make sure out of all the 12 disciples that, that I'm on your right and he's on the left? This is like how unaware they are of what Jesus is saying. They, they just can't comprehend cross, dying, being spit upon, mocked upon. This is the king. There's no way that could happen. And, and then I love, keep reading down in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he just, Jesus says it explicitly. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the paradoxical nature of Jesus. That this king, that this king Jesus came not for a crown, but he came for the cross. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. And when you think about first century world, they understood kings. I mean, they had been well acquainted with kings. And here's what they knew of kings. When a foreign army invaded, when, when, when they had to dispel an enemy, when that happened, the king would get his slaves and his servants together and he would send his slaves out to sacrifice for king and country while he stayed in the safe confines of the palace. This was what they knew of kings. But, but this king was different. Rather than sending his slaves and his servants out, he didn't do that. Rather than saying, hey, you, you get on your garb and, and you're kind of arraignments for war. He said, no, you, you don't do that. I'm going to get on my garments for war. You stay where it's safe. I'm going where it's dangerous. It, it's not, you know, you sacrificing your life for king and country. It is me, King Jesus, saying, I will sacrifice my life for you. Rather than the king saying, hey, you go lose your life, Jesus is saying, no, I will go and lose my life so that you can have it. Rather than Jesus saying, hey, you go and suffer, he's he's not saying that. King Jesus is saying, no, I will go and suffer for you so that you can be saved. It is the paradoxical nature of this king Jesus. He's saying that, no, I, this king, am going to go die for you, for your sake. I'm going to go take on all of your sin. I'm going to have poured out on me all of God's wrath for your sin so that you can be redeemed and rescued and saved. They'd never known a king like this. No precedent for a king like this. If you want to think about the structure of Mark, you can maybe think about it, the theme of Mark like this. First eight chapters that we've got a king. Second eight chapters that we've got a king on his way to a cross. This is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus has come. And, and thirdly, this is kind of the question of the book of Mark. This is really the question that Mark is about answering. Is what is our response to this King Jesus? What is our response going to be to him? This is the question of Mark. Mark did not write you to give you some, some miscellaneous stories about the life of Jesus. That's not the reason he wrote the gospel of Mark. He wrote the gospel of Mark to persuade you to all out, unabandoned, belief in Jesus. That's why he wrote it, to persuade, to convince you that Jesus is worthy of your ultimate allegiance, that he is worth everything. We're going to see throughout the gospel of Mark that we can't get away from Jesus because Mark won't let us get away from Jesus. We're going to see that it's always about Jesus and it's only about Jesus. He's going to keep Jesus before us in every verse of this book. 
Jesus is the hero of the Bible, and we're going to see that he is definitely the hero of Mark. We're going to be constantly confronted with who this Jesus is. The Christ, the Son of God. We're going to be consistently confronted with who we are. Sinners in need of great salvation. And we're going to be shown what God has done for us in Jesus to secure that. Sent him to a cross, slaughtered him for our sin in our place so that you and I could be saved. And the pressing question of Mark is, what are you going to do with that? And you know, when you think about how Mark lays out, there's really three different responses that you see. You see the crowds, and the crowds admire Jesus. I mean, can you believe these miracles and these things that he's doing? They admired him. Then you've got the critics who opposed Jesus. By Mark chapter 3, verse 6, you had the Pharisees who were already kind of plotting, kind of getting this plan together to eradicate the problem of Jesus. And then you've got Christians who actually follow Jesus who actually sell out to Jesus, who actually, and I love how you see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 18 and verse 20, where they leave immediately, the Bible says, they immediately leave everything and they follow him. You've got that response. And can I just say, that's the response the book of Mark is pressing upon every one of us, trying to convince every one of us that King Jesus is worth that. Full out and immediate following him. So, so really, and we'll just kind of leave with this question this morning. The, the question of the book of Mark is really going to be this for us. W- what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? And I think it's really a great question for our culture because this is what our culture does with Jesus. Here's the predominant person that, that just kind of fits in our culture that, that kind of likes Jesus. It is we, we look at this person over here who actually loves Jesus, is actually following Jesus, is actually a Christian. Who, who like has a heart that is inflamed with a love for God. We, we look at that person and we say, that person's crazy. And then we look at this person over here. This is kind of side two. And these are the critics. These are the people who, who don't like Jesus. These are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the first century. Who they act, they're trying to eradicate the problem of Jesus. They're opposing Jesus. They hate Jesus. They want Jesus gone. And we look at them and say, they're kind of weird too. So the predominant person in American Christianity is the person that says this. The people who are following Jesus are crazy. The people who hate Jesus are crazy. So what I'm going to try to do is kind of get this middle ground going. I'm going I'm to try to pull the people who are following Jesus over here in the middle. I'm going to try to pull a little bit from the people who are crazy about trying to kill Jesus over here to the middle. And I'm just going to kind of be in this frame right here, kind of the crowd of people in Mark, where I'm just going to kind of admire Jesus. I'm not going to actively follow him, but I'm not going to kill him either. I'm just going to kind of be neutral. I'm going to kind of be in the middle with Jesus. I'm going to be the person that kind of, you know, I'll pray before a meal, maybe before I go to bed if I'm not too tired. I'm going to make sure that, that my sons and daughters, they get in church, especially when they're young, where they can hear all the stories in the Bible. I'm going to make sure all of that's had. I, I, you know, if I'm asking about Jesus, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. I mean, he, he lived an imitatable life. His teachings are great. See, see, it's this middle ground. It's these people who aren't actively following Jesus. There's no pursuit of God in their, in their life. There's no active love of God in their life. There's no like, active desire and affection for God in their heart. But at the same time, they don't hate Jesus either. They're just in the middle, neutral, maybe even slightly favorable. And can I just say what the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark is going to show us? Starting in Mark 1, 1. You cannot stay in the middle with this Jesus. You can't do it. And why? And this is the reason that that you live in the most dangerous place and dangerous time for a Christian to have ever been born and lived. It's because you live in a culture full of people who think they can. Who think that they can just be slightly favorable, neutral, kind of stay in the middle. No no full-on pursuit, no, no hatred of Jesus. Just kind of in the middle with him. Just kind of admiring Jesus. And you can't do that. See, when he says that I am the Christ, the Son of God, he is saying this, I am either crazy or I am actually the Son of God that demands absolute allegiance. But I'm one or the other. You can't stay in the middle with me. I love what one author says. 
He says, you can either kill him or you can crown him. But the one thing you can't do is just say, oh, what an interesting guy. And you know what my fear is for a lot of us in the room? He's just an interesting guy to us. He's not a savior for us. He's not the one that we're putting our hope in, the one that we're trusting, the one that we're treasuring, the one that has our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate love. He's just an interesting guy to us. And what I hope the gospel of Mark does to you and to me and to us is blow our hearts up with this view of Jesus, this this Jesus that is a king that, that was willing, humble enough to suffer on the cross for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. And if we start to see Jesus like that, you know what's gonna happen? We're gonna be the Christians who actually start following, amen? Let's pray for it. I want to give you a second just to sit under that and ask the Spirit of God to press up in, upon you the things that your heart and your soul needs this morning. <clears throat> and here's the truth in the room today is that there is a huge group of us this morning who Jesus is just an interesting guy for us. He is not the center of our life. He is not the one that we give ultimate allegiance and loyalty to. He is not the one that we have surrendered everything to. Just just an interesting guy. There is no passionate love for Jesus in our heart. There are few affections for Jesus, little desire for Jesus. And and if that's you this morning, can can I just invite you, this would be such a, a perfect moment this morning to repent of that. To hold that up to God and to say, God, I don't have the desire and and just the full-on love and pursuit of Jesus that I should. And and do you know what the the good news of the gospel is for those in the room that are there this morning? That in Jesus, there is grace to cover that. And in Jesus, when we start to feel that sort of grace in Jesus, that there is power to live a life of sacrificial love for him that God would be so willing this morning to restore the joy of your salvation, to restore in you a passionate love for Jesus, a desire for Jesus, hope in Jesus, trust in Jesus, treasuring Jesus. That God would be so willing to do that today. And so God, I want to pray for my church family. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.